other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Um, do we we have Gene? Uh, okay, good. Uh, I uh, have been a friend and admirer of uh, Gene Berardelli for a long time. He is a uh, an attorney in uh, New York State, but has uh, been involved in all sorts of things around the country. Great political thinker, a wonderful guy, and he is the author of a book called Schnooks, Crooks, Liars, and Scoundrels, A Field Guide to Identifying Political Buffoons. I have to tell you, when I first looked at this book, I kind of, it's very cleverly illustrated. There's a lot of very clever illustrations, which we're going to talk about in a minute. I kind of expected this book to be just silly because I thought that the illustrations were designed more towards humor. And I thought this was going to be your typical Republicans good, Democrats bad look at politics. And I figure, okay, Gene's a friend of mine. I'll have him on to talk about it. Lo and behold, I read this book and this is why you should not judge a book by its cover. This book is honestly nothing short of brilliant. This book is able to blend history with a lot of great quotes and a lot of great depths, a lot of great depth uh, and a lot of great historical context with what's happening in America today. And at the same time, actually give not just voters, but all Americans sort of a a way to guard themselves against the worst elements in society and the political system. So it really is a uh, terrific, really well-written book uh, that says in language that even dullards like me can understand why some people are uh, schnooks, crooks, liars, and scoundrels. Gene, it's great to talk with you, and uh, thanks for joining me on the radio. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. What an introduction. That might be the the greatest introduction I've, I've ever heard. The check's in the mail, pal. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we'll, have, uh, we'll have our folks tell you where, where you could send it. Uh, hey, Gene, before we talk about the book, I'm sure you watched uh, last night's uh, gubernatorial debate in New York, maybe even the uh, U.S. Senate debate in Pennsylvania. If you did watch either or both of those debates, what were your impressions? So I did watch both of the debates, uh, and I've been listening to a lot of what your your listeners have been saying uh, in the past couple of minutes, and all great takes, by the way. If there was ever a definition of a hold-your-nose election, it's what's happening in the gubernatorial race in New York. I think both candidates, both Lee Zeldin, who, with full disclosure, is currently my congressman, and Kathy Hochul, they both have their issues. And their issues seem to revolve around the same thing, avoidance of their own shortcomings. And I think those shortcomings came out in both of the tactics that they brought in the election. Now, when it comes to the Pennsylvania election, just very quickly, uh, you know, again, the candidates had their own warts and all. But I feel really badly about talking about Fetterman because all I do is feel empathy for what he's going through personally. And it, it. It's 
I'm, I'm here talking about a book about political buffoonery. I'm, I'm not going to pick on the infirmed. You know what I mean? Right. I get that. I get that. Um, you know, that make that all makes sense. Well, so let's talk about the let's talk about the uh, the book. What what made you write this book? Obviously, you're a pretty busy guy. You got a, a vibrant law practice and a lot of other stuff going on. And I can tell the amount of work and the amount of research that you put into this book. Why write it? So I wrote this for a couple of reasons. First reason is uh, because I was involved in politics in what I lovingly call the People's Republic of New York City. I came across a lot of characters and a lot of candidates in my capacity as being one of the attorneys for the Republican Party in Brooklyn. And I had to find a way to sort of rationalize why these sorts of characters get into politics and to see if there's anything redeemable about them or anything like that. The other reason why is because a lot of my friends who are observers in politics were seeing the same things I was, and we would have these discussions about politics and what draws these sort of people into politics. And this book is sort of like a, a, a love letter to that 10 years of my involvement in institutional politics, where I ran into a great many types of buffoons. All right. Now, um, what is the worst? A schnook, a crook, a liar, or a scoundrel? What is the worst well, I mean, thing to be? There are, I think the worst thing to be is a scoundrel. And I think that it corresponds to, uh, a, a, a plethora of buffoons, but as people will see in the book, I do try to do sort of an ascending range of buffoons from the from the bless your heart crowd to the really radioactive. And I think in New York State, we have seen the gamut of them. Yeah. And it does it's not it's not just one party, Frank. It's politics in general. No, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about your book. You go, you, um, you're not selective in terms of picking on one party or one ideology. You let everybody have it, uh, including Republican senators, including one person we're going to talk about in a minute. But Republican senators going all the way back to the days of Roscoe Conkling in the uh, in the 1870s and 1880s. So it was really an educational book as well. Um, all right, you spent a little bit of time focusing on Kamala Harris. What is she? Schnook crook liar scoundrel and why wow what a question uh see the thing about buffoonery is there isn't a discrete classification someone can be a hybrid buffoon and contain so many different aspects of different types of buffoons that are identified in the book i would say that there's an aspect of her that has all four of them she's a schnook because when you hear her speak her word salad sometimes, you, you kind of have to laugh it off and realize what a buffoon she is. She's a crook if you think about what was going on in California when she was attorney general and uh, the issue of prison labor and keeping uh, prisoners longer than their term in order to maintain the, 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 uh, the labor there. Uh, she's a liar for many of her hot takes in politics, especially when she was on the, the Senate uh Judiciary Committee, and, and you heard her speak on, on behalf of the Democratic Party when it came to judicial appointments and, th- and things like that. And she's a scoundrel because she's in D.C. She's part of that swamp mentality where you put yourself before your represent- your representation in, in politics. So in a way, she's sort of all four of those and, and probably more about the uh, different subcategories we identify in the book as well. All right. Let me ask you about a fellow that is a household name, not only to New Yorkers, but to Americans around the country, because he's uh, had a starring role in the last three presidential impeachments. 
Uh, Congressman Gerald Nadler recently renominated uh, to be the Democratic nominee here in New York. Here he was back in 1998 talking about the Clinton impeachment. But the impeachment of the president is even worse because, again, we're losing distinction of uh, we're losing track of the distinction between sins and crimes. We're lowering the standard of impeachment. What the president has done is not a great and dangerous offense to the safety of the republic. In the words of George Mason, it is not an impeachable offense under the meaning of the Constitution. And as you heard from Mr. Conyers, the allegations are far, far from proven. And the fact is we are not simply transmitting evidence, to the, transmitting a case with some evidence to the Senate as evidenced by the fact that we already heard leaders of this House say he should resign. God forbid that he should resign. He should fight this and beat it. Uh, he was very fired up and just as fired up 20 years later when he was speaking uh, just as vociferously in favor of the impeachment of another president, Donald Trump. We intend to secure accountability for any wrongdoing because no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States. You seem to um, accuse Congressman Nadler of hypocrisy here and you cite his being on both sides of the impeachment issue. Uh, where do you think Gerald Nadler falls in terms of uh, political buffoonery? And I'll, I'll do you one better just so we can keep this fair and balanced. Gerald Nadler and Lindsey Graham, for example, are examples of what I like to call the agenda gymnast. They are the buffoon that will see the goal at the end of the rainbow that they want to reach, and they will contort their own personal views and their own personal credibility to try to reach that goal. If you listen to what Jerry Nadler was saying in that clip that you just played, you could have easily switched those two speeches and attributed them to Lindsey Graham, who, by the way, was one of the impeachment managers during the Clinton uh, impeachment. And you could see those same two speeches coming out of his mouth, just in reverse, depending upon the jersey of the person that is the subject of the inquiry, whether it be Republican or Democrat. So to me, he's Nadler, Graham, and many others are the sort of contortionists that are trying to bend their way to get to the goal. And that goal is supremacy of their own power and their party's power. Now, if Gerald Nadler were here, I think that he would probably say, well, it may seem that way, but the difference is in the Clinton era, what he did was not impeachable. And in the Trump era, what he did was impeachable. Lindsey Graham probably would say the same thing with the president's reversed. Why isn't that a, a fair thing for either of those guys to say? Well, frankly, I, I think it's not really a fair thing for either one of them to say. I'm going to sort of reject the premise of the question because I, I think the idea is that the end justifies the means. Uh, they're looking at the end goal. And that's why we, we talk about, you know, flip-flopping politicians. Politicians will flip-flop or contort themselves, as, as what I'm saying, because they are looking at that end goal. You and I love baseball, Frank. Let me give you a baseball reference. Maybe you remember the movie Major League Two. Sure. And there was a new uh, new catcher that was brought in to replace Tom Berenger's character. And Bob Euchre, God bless him, played that role of Harry Doyle so well when he says, you know, I used to hate that guy when he was with the other team. It's amazing <laughs> what a change of uniform will do for a, a player. No, but he wasn't, talking, this is all about. he wasn't talking about the catcher. He was talking about Parkman. Parkman. Right. Uh, he was yeah, the catcher. Yeah, he, no. 
I, oh well, but I thought it was uh, the fellow that couldn't throw. That was uh, the the Mackie Sasser. Oh no, guy. I'm not talking about Rube. I'm not talking about Rube. Yeah. I'm talking about I, Parkman. Yeah, no, I didn't realize pa- Parkman was uh, was a catcher. But uh, again, it's been a while since I saw the picture. Hey, let me ask you about a guy that is um, still very much in the public eye, still very much in the news, even though he hasn't been in public office in 14 months. Now he's the latest addition to the world of podcasting, and that's Andrew Cuomo. How do you uh, how do you grade Andrew Cuomo in terms of your political buffoonery index? Andrew Cuomo is the worst of the worst. And I say that in the worst way possible. Andrew Cuomo is the type of buffoon that is probably the most serious and, and corrupted buffoon. It's absolutely irredeemable. Andrew Cuomo is radioactive. Not only did he take himself down, he took down a great number of other people, including his brother. In his own failings. We saw it uh, when he was trying to clean up the, the swamp that is Albany with his his own uh, commission. the uh, Moreland Commission, sure. Corruption. Yeah, you did a great yeah, exactly. job um, highlighting some of the quotes, which we should have seen, and uh, some of us did see, as, uh, as exa- harbingers of things that would come next, including making clear that, uh, even though the, this was not accurate, making clear that uh, he was in charge of the commission, this was his commission, he's allowed to tamper with it as much as he can. I mean, you talk about narcissism and hubris, you make the case that this should have been a warning sign for everybody. Absolutely. Let's let's pull the quote. It's my commission, my subpoena power, my Moreland commission. I can appoint it. I can disband it. I appoint you. I can unappoint you tomorrow. So interference, it's my commission. I can't interfere with it because it's mine. It's controlled by me. If that doesn't sum up Andrew Cuomo in a nutshell, nothing does. But yet people kept reelecting him. And reelecting him for for comfort, for you know, because it's the the easy way to go, and you don't want to get involved in politics. Well, then look what happens a couple of terms later with uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. What happened in in nursing homes? What happened with his own uh, you know sexual misconduct uh, allegations and and what uh, the attorney general found out about him? You reap what you sow when you let buffoons fester. I don't think there's a congresswoman in the United States that's better known than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Also, probably few that are more polarizing. Uh, how do you view Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? I actually have a lot of respect for her. I, I think that if you ever want to talk about branding, AOC is AOC because she has branded herself that way and has implanted that acronym in the public consciousness. I really think that as far as branding goes and the way that she she definitely moves through politics, very good. But when you start looking for record, when you start looking for what she's actually accomplished, what bills she supported, there's nothing there. And then when you add in the fact, besides that she's a political gadfly and is just, you know, you know, sucking off of uh, the government, basically. You add into that that she's hypocritical in her own ways when it comes to ideas of economics of socialism. You know, she'll she'll you know say you know tax the rich and wear a dress to the Met, all while hawking a sixty dollars sweatshirt online on her own personal e-commerce shop. 
I mean, if that doesn't scream hypocrisy, I don't know what does. If people, uh, but you got to give it to her. She keeps on becoming relevant because she knows how to brand herself. Uh, no, I uh, I completely agree with you. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Gene Berardelli. He's the author of a book called Schnooks, Crooks, Liars, and Scoundrels, A Field Guide to Identifying Political Buffoons. It's available on Amazon. You can get it for 99 cents if you want the Kindle version, a little bit more if you want a paper version. Let me ask you about a fella who has been very well known to the folks in the New York area for the last 40 years, but uh, pretty well known nationally for at least the last 25 or so. Former presidential candidate turned MSNBC host back in the early days of his ascendant career as a civil rights leader. He was more known for a lot of the racially inflammatory things that he would say about people. Now, while Al Sharpton uh, doesn't use language like that, at least not publicly anymore, uh, that really did define a lot of his early uh, public commentary, calling Mayor Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York City, uh, he said he had the only N-word problem. He wanted to be the only N-word on television and so forth. How do you uh, characterize Al Sharpton, and has your evaluation of Sharpton changed over time as he sort of tried to mature his own public image? Al Sharpton is the alpha and the omega of political buffoonery. He is the beginning and the end. The book goes through about 11 different subcategories of buffoons. Al Sharpton fits into every single subcategory of buffoon <laughs> that we've identified so far in this pseudoscience that I like, I like to call buffoonology. You can find an example of Al Sharpton being, you know, a just bless your heart buffoon, the sort of innocuous, harmless person that, you know, their, their reach exceeds their grasp or that he's so radioactive that you don't even want to deal with him from being on you know TV and complaining about how he was portrayed in movies to the clip that you just played with talking about David Dinkins or going after Jesse Jackson uh, back in the day. You may remember that as well to his botched runs for both New York, uh, state, New York uh, Senate and for uh, the presidency. My goodness, what a body of work. As you said, over 40 years, he has become and transmuted himself into every type of buffoon identified in the book. But- in fact, every chapter has a little mention about Al Sharpton going off of and being a buffoon. But because Sharpton uh, is not the Al Sharpton of the uh, jogging suit and gold medallion era that a lot of folks remember him for, as being in the early 80s, does he get any credit in your book uh, for maturing at all, for rebranding himself at all, for reinventing himself at all? Well, there there is at least one instance where he does feel some remorse, but I don't think a, I don't think a zebra changes their stripes in that way. I I think that because he has found easier paths of resistance and different ways and different hustles to do, I don't think that means that he hasn't changed at his core from being this just prototypical political buffoon that is caring more about his own ego, ego and his own power, his own self-gratification than he is about the issue at hand. It's the only difference now between the uh, tracksuit wearing medallion 
clad Al Sharpton with, with everybody wanted to have the Al Sharpton haircut. And today's Al Sharpton is that he's dressing in finer suits and getting on private planes when he's going to act like a buffoon now. All right. Last uh, high profile Politico I'll ask you about is uh, the senator from Texas, Ted Cruz. You spend a little bit of time focusing on his handling of a a freak snowstorm in Texas where he chose to leave the state. This is him speaking to WFAA in Texas about leaving Texas during the snowstorm. We had spent two days without power, and my girls wanted to take a trip with their friends and, frankly, get somewhere uh, where... It was warmer. Uh, they said, "Look, why don't we t- why don't we take a trip? Let's 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 go somewhere where it's not so cold." I started having second thoughts almost the moment I sat down on the plane. Leaving when so many Texans were hurting uh, didn't feel right, and so I, I changed my return flight and and, and flew back uh, on the first available flight I could take. Do you understand why people are so upset right now? And it it sounds like. You, you do have a little bit of remorse from this. Do you, do you feel that it's deserved or no? Oh, sure. Of, of course I understand why people are upset. So what's the matter with Ted Cruz? Why was that explanation insufficient? And we only have about a minute here, Gene. So give us the Reader's sure. Digest version. The Reader's Digest version, it's a shocking lack of self-awareness. Ted Cruz tried to create this self-image of a tireless and virtuous politician. The holier-than-thou politician, if you will. I'm the one getting things done. Well, when your state needs you the most on the front lines of an emergency, you, your family and you decide apparently to go to uh, Cancun. And then the explanation you give is it kind of falls apart when you look at the facts. He claimed that he was always you know, going to be coming back after dropping off his family in, in Mexico. I don't think the facts bore that out when they looked at when he bought his ticket. Mm. So it was more about saving face than it was about public service. And that's what made him a buffoon. Man, why you gotta go make me go after people I like? Hey, uh, well, that's what makes you so refreshing. Uh, the book is really interesting. It's, uh, it's fun. It's, uh, really, it's intelligent and it's really something people should read. Schnooks, Crooks, Liars, and Scoundrels. Its author is Gene Berardelli. You can uh, just search the title of that book on Amazon or just type in B-E-R-A-R-D-E-L-L-I. Congratulations on the book, Gene. We'll talk again soon. I appreciate it. Guys, get the 99-cent version. It's not about the money. It's about the message. Thanks so much, Frank. Hey, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 800-848-9222. Also, if you want to comment on any of the debates last night, you're welcome to. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.